Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hey, Eric, it's time for another show powered by... the best Indiana sports website on planet Earth and beyond. Have you been following it lately with the transfer portal and it's the Joey Brunk news sure. and the trend in Wadford buzz? Yeah, of it's, course. Jeff Rabjohns, I mean, the guy, his life, I can't picture it. I picture him at like three in the morning in like an old film vault, like a 16 millimeter film, like watching old <laughs> film of like recruits grandfathers to just pick up on something that might give him a hint on what kind of player this guy will be. I still don't know what his face looks like. All I know is what he looks like from behind because of the Southport tournament that Snow organized. All I see is him from behind and you being like, that's Rabby right there. And then across the court, maybe 200 feet away, I saw Brian Snow. I don't really know what he looks like either. No, they're just shapes. They're just yeah. they're just shapes. Uh, by the way, the other thing on Peaks that I just love, look, it was a tough basketball season, right? Mm, We've yep. talked about it. Really tough. The football season, uh, come on, right? I mean, we know what that is. There's not a ton to be excited about, is my point. Swimming about, and diving. But that is my point. You go to Peaks, and Mike Pegram is there live, like not live tweeting, but doing message board stuff. He is tweeting from it. Well, like, he was on the swimming and diving he team. He was. But I just love and we and Indiana finished third. Yeah. Right? In the in the nationals. I just love that if you love Indiana University and you want to feel good about the university and everything that it has going on from an athletic standpoint. Baseball's doing well. You got baseball. You got soccer. You got uh, the women's softball team. I I didn't know any of this stuff about Indiana sports before I was a Peags member. And now it just gives me pride to know that our softball team is doing great. The, the coverage of the women's basketball team, which made a run in the NCAA, got to the NCAA tournament, won a first-round game against Texas – all of that can be found on Peaks. It just it fills me with Indiana pride. All jokes aside, it, it is it gives me more enjoyment than any other 
website or resource that I possibly could go to. Amen. So that being said, hit it, Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this this one, they're all special, but this one's especially special. Eric, will you tell our Hoosier Hysterics listeners who we've got for them today? Well, for a Hoosier Hysterics first, we are speaking to our first head coach on our podcast. Not only that, but our first NBA head coach. We are also speaking to the career leader in free throw percentage at Nazareth College. We are also speaking to a graduate assistant for Rick Pitino at Providence College in the 1987 Final Four run. We are speaking to a coach with 18 seasons of NBA coaching experience, 11 as a head coach. And we are speaking to, I'll just say it, the greatest color commentator ever in the history of basketball. Of all time. Please welcome Jeff Van Gundy. How about that, Jeff? Wow. That was very nice. I don't even know if I believe half of that, but that's nice. Yeah, very good. You don't have to believe it. We believe it, so that's all that matters. Well, that's good. Good. Nice to be with you guys. Thanks a lot for joining us. So, Jeff, wh- uh, where are you right now? Are you in Houston? Houston, Texas, yep. Um, because of the way the NCAA tournament falls, uh, we don't have as many games on. Uh, so I have a game during the Final Four on the Sunday in Minnesota. But that's my next game, so it's been nice to watch some college basketball and uh, get away from the NBA for a little bit. So what's your take on uh, this will probably air right after the uh, title game, this podcast, but let's talk about the games that happened this weekend, the Elite Eight games leading into the Final Four teams. What was your uh, overall impression of what you saw? Well, I think they were terrific, uh, very close, a, a lot of special situations. So from a coaching standpoint, uh, you had a lot of chances to evaluate what you believe and why you believe it. Do you believe to foul up three? Um, how much time? How about free throw rebounding? Uh, so many things came up in these close games that uh, would really give coaches a lot to think about, uh, reevaluate of. And then the play, I thought, uh, you know, the thing that always puzzles me, guys, I, I don't know if you're big college football fans, but it's so hard to score a basket in college basketball, but so easy to score a touchdown in college football. And I never have understood why it's so hard to score a basket. Um, you know, to me, it's the intensity and the defensive coaching and preparation, you know, exceeds the talent and skill. But this, in, the, in these games, I thought the offensive skill was terrific. It also, uh, Ward and I talk about this a lot as it relates to the Big Ten. Just the style of play, obviously we're focused on Indiana University. The referees just allow tackle football on basketball courts a lot in college basketball, especially in the Big Ten. And there is just so much grabbing and touching and preventing a guy from getting to his spot. You don't see that in the ACC, at least from my eyes. You don't see it in the NBA for sure. There's always there, there has been a real focus on allowing offensive basketball to take over. Do you think refereeing has something to do with it? Well, not just refereeing, but rule interpretations by leagues. And so certainly the NBA in the 90s, the rules and the interpretations uh, all help the defense. Uh, and now everything in the NBA uh, has helped the offense. In college basketball, I think that physicality that you're speaking about, they're trying to lessen it. Um, it's hard to find 
uh, with so many colleges and so many referees and so many uh, different supervisors of officials, it's hard to find the ability to have common ground on what's legal and illegal. And I think the NBA has gone too far the other way. I think a little bit more contact would be good. I think in college basketball, uh, particularly on the perimeter, a little less contact would be better. But I think the goal should be the rules should be similar and the interpretation should be similar. I'd like to see college go to um, 24 seconds. I'd like to see the NBA go to any defense allowed. And, uh, you know, I think the more similar the game is, the better it will be played from the lower levels. Now, when you're looking at the three-pointers that are going on, I think, what was it, last night, two nights ago, a record was set for the most three-pointers taken in a game. Is that sustainable? Are we moving towards uh, not only a professional league, but a college league and even even a high school situation where that's where it goes and that's where it stays? Or do you think at some point it's got to work its way back to, hey, we got a big boy down low and let's just work through him? Uh, I think it is going to continue to rise. I think that's unfortunate for the game. I think the game, everybody's trying to play similarly without the same players, which I find ironic or moronic depending on how you you know view it right is this like a golden Um, state thing because of what golden state set out as a template i don't know if you guys remember this but about three or four years ago mark jackson on air said steph curry's ruining the game yes and people like oh how could you say that about poor steph you know like but it wasn't a shot at curry it was a shot at everyone's trying to play like him from an individual standpoint so the shots that he makes look easy are absolutely impossible shots. But everyone starts at the three-point line now when you watch them play. You go to high school games, the shot selection is, by certain teams and players, is bizarre. And I think, unfortunately, our game is to a point where it can be very boring. Like, three-pointers are not exciting. the skill of shooting, I would hope, would open up the lane so they attack the basket and plays at the rim, to me, which are the exciting plays in the game, would open up even more. But you see time and time again transition with numbers uh, and the ability to attack and, and, and score the ball at the rim uh, is turned down instead to fan out and shoot a three. And I think we've gotten our math wrong. We say it's analytics, but it's not. And- Analytics would tell you layups and dunks are the best shot. Free throws are the next best shot. And then the three after that, um, taking away, you know, trying to eliminate the long two. Um, So I I think sometimes teams play backwards. They don't totally understand the math. But I also think, you know, the NBA game is sometimes hard to watch because it's so repetitive and everyone plays similarly. I was a fan of the nineties and the early two thousands because there was differences in style. You had, you know, Reggie Miller running off baseline screens in Indiana. You had Chicago employing the triangle offense. You had us trying in New York, trying to basically decapitate anybody that came into the lane. Um, There were just so many ways to play. Um, And now it's just, it's all very similar. And at times 
to me, it can be a little bit boring. All right. Well, I want to get more into this because I love going into the weeds on on basketball strategy. But I want to get into a little bit of your background. When did you fall in love with the game of basketball? Well, my father coached uh, until he was 65. He was a high school coach, then a Division One assistant, then a small college and junior college coach. So I was around basketball uh, my whole life growing up in the gym because the beauty about small college basketball is you can be right there with your father uh, at practices, at games, sitting on the bench, in the locker room. And uh, I, I got every one of those advantages. And so uh, learned a lot about the game without even realizing it just by being around the game uh, as much as I was. And then, you know, from there, you know, played in high school and small college and, you know, got a lot of breaks in coaching. And well, Wait, really wait, wait. So we got to slow down. I wait. want to talk about Jeff Van Gundy, the player. <laughs> I want to know what kind of. Not really. Not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. a lot there. I, yeah. I want to know, were you the player that other teams hated? Did you mix it up? Was there any trash talking going on? What kind of player were you? First of all, when you average 10 points a game in college, you have very limited times to trash talk. So, <laughs> you know, you, you, that should be like left for the guys that were, were good. I, I think myself, I was, a you know, you want to say a defensive oriented player because you stunk on offense. So that's basically what it was. But I, the one thing that I learned a lot about as a player that I tried to implement as a coach though to bring it back to the coaching part is being unafraid of the result uh, I was a guy who just didn't have the confidence level to withstand over four to start the game and keep letting him go uh, you know and so I, I really as a coach had impacted me a lot because I didn't want players to play like that to me if you're open and it's, it's your shot and your best our best shot like fire away and leave it to me as the coach to decide if your cold streak is hurting our chances to win, but don't you stop being confident and letting, letting your shot fly. And um, so that's who I was in a nutshell as a player. So when you're growing up with your father as a coach and your brother is also going to be a coach, how much of that is, especially with Stan, is it like sibling rivalry where you're pushing each other to be better through a sense of competition? How much of it is just being in a car ride, coming to or from practice, talking about the game? How how much does that push you to greatness by being being around other minds like that day in and day out? I don't even think – I think it's more subconscious than anything. You know, it's um, going scouting – as my dad's scouting and him handing you a pad just to keep you out of his hair and saying, you know, scout this team, you know, give me your thoughts. And I'm sure he just balled up that stuff uh, when he got home and threw it away, but it made you sit there and watch uh, and try to understand what was going on and diagram and learn the, uh, the vernacular of coaches. And again, being around practices and being on the bench during games, you saw and heard, uh, things that others wouldn't be privy to. So I, I think it was all subconscious. Uh, but again, if you get that many reps, even subconsciously at learning a subject, it's going to help you. And I, I really felt that it allowed me 
to be able to see the game uh, and be a play ahead as a, as a player, be able to see it. And I think that helps quite a lot as a coach as well, to be able to see all 10 players on the floor and remember what each one did or was supposed to do. I think there's a huge advantage that uh, if I didn't have my father in coaching would have been a lot more difficult to obtain. So, my dad uh, coached. He he was a frustrated coach. My dad coached our. We didn't have AAU, but our youth league games and 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 studied coaching. And my dad went to Indiana University and was a total devotee of Coach Bob Knight. Uh, and I remember growing up that my dad would talk about Coach Knight and Red Auerbach. When you were a kid, and your dad is a coach. Were there coaches that you looked up to that that like were your dad's uh, role models that you just kind of took something from? Well, my dad went to Cal, so Pete Newell was. You know, we grew up on the West Coast uh, right. until I was a sophomore in high school. So Pete Newell was uh, the big name, but there was a guy there that I ended up playing ju- junior college basketball for. That was one of my dad's best friends. That's one of the greatest coaches to ever coach, particularly that you don't know. And his name was Bud Presley. And he's a, he was a defensive legend that Bob Knight, uh, Mike Krzyzewski all, uh, talked about. And I too went to the Bob Knight, uh, right after I graduated from college, it was in 85, he had a um, coaching academy. It was three days, uh, and it was on the, on campus. And we were fortunate because that year they were taking a trip to somewhere, and they were practicing. So we got to not only hear him lecture, uh, but we also got to see him practice. And the thing that you – all great teachers, and he was a great teacher, but one of the things – he had in common with, you know, the other great teachers that I've been around is demanding, demanding to a, an attention to detail. Uh, and th- there was going to be no lowering of the standard that he expected. And frankly, it, it was one of the great experiences I've had because I played for guys like that and they had different volumes. You know, some were very loud and uh, combative. Others were quiet and more pro professorial, but they all had these demands to a standard. And I think that's one thing when you learn to coach, it's not as much about what you do. Is it motion? Is it flex? Is it, you know, uh, dribble drive, whatever scheme you have in mind. Uh, it's not as much about that is about how you do whatever it is that you do do and your attention to detail. And so I was very fortunate growing up that, um, my dad was that type of coach, uh, but so too were the people I was able to be around early on in my playing career, but also as I started coaching. So you start coaching, and you have a very fateful encounter with Stu Jackson. Could you talk uh, about how he really helped get you going first to Providence and then into the NBA? So I was a high school coach my first year out of uh, college. I was at an all-boys Catholic school, and uh, I had a really good sophomore player that Providence College, where Stu Jackson and Rick Pitino were at, they were coming through. Stu Jackson was to recruit a junior in Rochester, New York. I had a sophomore, but he wanted to stop by and introduce himself. And this was after uh, our season. And we talked for about half hour about the young man and about their program. And then after that, he said, uh, 
you should apply to be our graduate assistant because everybody got moved up. And I did. And uh, fortunately, I got the job. And then uh, two years uh, later, Stu, who had gone with Coach Patino to the New York Knicks, got promoted to being the head coach of the Knicks. And he brought me in as his uh, uh, third assistant, uh, which was in charge of all the scouting. And back then, you had less people on staff. So it was a great thing for me. I got to do, I got to be on the floor, on the bench, but also to do all the advanced scouting and all the walkthroughs. So great teaching uh, or learning experience for me, learning from all the great coaches and teams uh, in the late 80s, early 90s uh, in the NBA. An incredible, incredible opportunity. So before we get to the uh, your NBA career, which we will dive into, I want to talk a little bit about Providence. Now, one thing, Jeff, we are not journalists at all. So I want to just preface this by saying I hate Rick Pitino as a Indiana University basketball fan. So just understand that when I say that, okay? That's that's the starting okay. point. But why? Well, uh, I mean, you really want to get into it? Well, he, co- he coached Kentucky and Louisville. That's that's, that's, that's all a big you part really of it. need to know as far as our bias goes. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, I hate everybody who doesn't coach or play for indiana and i hate a lot oh, okay well that's good then yeah. no no it's not it's not just tilted towards rick patino okay it's towards no. everybody i like that i mean look it's not tilted towards rick patino but when i hear stories of him at the after hours restaurant and like yeah i mean there's some things that rick patino does that exacerbates my hatred for him is that fair well listen um i, I would say you know that the, the in- things that you mentioned, if you dig into anybody's background, you're going to find something to hate. But as far as coaching, Rick Pitino is one of the great, great coaches of all time. And actually, you guys should be happy with Rick Pitino because in 87, when I was at the Final Four with Providence College, if we would have beaten Syracuse, you guys wouldn't have won it that year. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You caused some matchup issues wow. for, for the general, huh? <laughs> exactly. You guys had nothing for Billy Donovan. Come on, man. Yeah, we had Come nothing on. for Billy Donovan. <laughs> we would have smoked you Darryl by... Thomas, Daryl Thomas and Dave Kipper? Come on, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we would have smoked you by 40. Listen, there was no greater coaching job ever accomplished or playing job than the job Billy Donovan and Rick Pitino did that year because they took I, – I, it's easily the least talented team in the last 30, 40 years to an NCAA Final Four. No question. Well, by the way, here's another reason I hate Rick Pitino, because he's so good. Like, you have to understand that there is a direct proportion to how much I hate another coach and how good they are. I mean, clearly, I hate Shashevsky, Patino, Calipari. I hate them all because we don't have any success. But you can't right now. hate Izzo, though, right? No, I don't. Oh, yes, he's I in can. The no, I hate yeah, him. Yeah, what are you talking can't. about? Everybody's kind of turned on Izzo lately. He's a whiner. He yeah. whines about everything. He whines. No, no. He he is going to try to save college athletics from being this mushy, soft, like like intolerable, like you can't even raise your voice anymore. I, so, I no, agree with you there. You guys, you have to get on the Tom Izzo bandwagon. And you don't have to, you don't have to love him, 
but you have to appreciate it. Well, no, let, let me let me let me separate a couple things. And here. John Beeline, you can't no, you can't hate John. I don't. Beeline. Yeah, I don't hate John. John's Beeline. really hard to get but, mad at. But let He's me say this: so about Izzo. good and 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 just like Izzo has been whining more lately, and and I think with everything that happened with Michigan State athletics, it. it 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 cast a real shadow over him that before even IU fans we all really respected and liked him but that's some of the sheen is off that that's true but I will say okay I, so I have one other thing you mentioned Beeline or I mentioned Beeline yeah what does John Beeline and I have in common and I'll answer because you'll never get it John Beeline coached at Nazareth College right before I went there wow. Was he a yep. legend? Was he a legend at Nazareth College? He was only there one year. So he went, he never, this is interesting about John Beeline. He never has ever, ever been an assistant coach. He was a head high school coach. Then he was a head junior college coach. Then his first four-year job was at uh, Nazareth College. And then he went, you know, bounced around. Then he went to Division Two at LeMoyne, Canisius, Richmond, West Virginia, you know, and so forth and so on. Uh but he is doing something that very, very few ever do, which is has always been a head coach. That That is staggering. Uh, I want to go back to Izzo for a second because I do 100% agree with you about how college sports and athletics in general are just getting soft. And I love when Izzo went after Aaron Henry, the freshman, and that caused some firestorm. You have to remember, too, as an Indiana fan, what Izzo did to Aaron Henry – is like the nicest thing Bob Knight ever did to a player. So like we're and used listen, to that. We all agree that we're we all agree that certain things cross the line. And 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 Knight obviously crossed the line uh, many times. I uh, in that case with Izzo, I didn't see any crossing of the line. Uh, um, unless you have total so sissified the game that you're going to try to remove all emotion uh, and think of these young men or young athletes as snowflakes that can forever be damaged. And I think that's damaging uh, in and of itself. And so uh, Tom Izzo, in those circumstances, what he was looking for was more effort and better play. And isn't it interesting how his players said that was nothing, the kid said that's nothing, and he actually played better from there. And that's what coaching and teaching should all be about, which is to try to demand the best from these young people and to push them where they're not they're not able to get there by themselves. They need a push, a shove, and sometimes corrections that is not going to be in a Gentile manner. It's going to be, you know, with some force and intensity. So um, – we can agree on that. Totally. Well, Tom Izzo as a whiner, we're never going to agree on, as Tom Izzo on a whine, as a whiner. Total whiner. We interviewed A.J. Moye. It was our first interview uh, for this podcast, and A.J. grew up in a, a pretty rough area in Atlanta, and he said anything that happened to him on the basketball court was nothing. It just really puts it into perspective, as you say, the sissifying of sports. If there can't be some discipline, if there can't be – uh, some level of intensity, you know, not physicality. And as long as you don't lay your hands on a player, can we just agree to let each coach do what they need to do to get the best out of their players and their team? There is a line there, and, and it's hard to define it. You know when you see it or hear it. Is there verbal abuse? Yes, I'm, I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, are there things 
that every coach wishes they had back without question. Um, is it systemic where it's like happening over and over again? Um, not even close. It, it's so different now and in some ways um, better, but I, I think in some ways we've allowed the strong voices of the few overrule uh, common sense thinking of the majority with their ideas that every conflict means there's something bad going on. Conflict clears the air. Conflict establishes guidelines and a baseline for effort uh, and responsibility. And I think sometimes we've allowed others who have no knowledge of sports tell us what's okay in sports and what's not okay. Great point. So let's get to the NBA. You you spend the the uh, couple years at Providence. You then become an assistant coach with the New York Knicks, and you're working for many years as an assistant under one of the greatest NBA coaches of all time, Pat Riley. What was it like working with Pat? He is a great leader in that he espouses hard work, toughness, uh, great conditioning. You know the basics. Uh, that sometimes can become boring to some, but he made us into a strong-minded, well-conditioned, uh, tough team. And it fit our personnel, and we were very, very good uh, for a long period of time. And unfortunately, uh, during that time, we ran into uh, Mount Jordan, and we couldn't scale it. And it was like we were a great team. The Pacers were a great team. Uh, during some of those battles and we just couldn't get over the top. And unfortunately, you know, the only time we were able to get there is when Jordan wasn't there. And uh, he was just that great and that dominant at the moment of truth. Would you agree that Michael's the best player that you've ever seen? Live and competed against. Yeah. Got it. So, and his teams were, were good. Obviously he made his teams better. But how much of your your Knicks teams and other teams of that era, too, not being able to scale Mount Jordan, was that they were the better team or that he just had this willpower and mind meld over the league where when it came down to it, he just couldn't lose? What Was it really that his, well, his teams yeah. were so much better or was there something else there? Well, his teams were very good. But obviously he was the difference and he was the difference in the fourth quarter. Uh, and listen, everything, as I mentioned earlier, was for the defense, the rules, the interpretations, the amount of contact, less shooting on the floor, less spacing. And he still was this guy who averaged 30 at over 50% shooting. If he played in today's game, I have no doubts in my mind he would average over 40 on 55% shooting. He, he just, he would, I mean, the guy would just be living at the free throw line. And so uh, he just had the ability. People want to say about his mental toughness or his intensity or his will. I think he had all that, but so too did a lot of players. Our players had all of that. What he had was an incredible skill level and athleticism in combination with his mental strength that allowed him to dominate down the stretch of games. And it wasn't like he never failed down the stretch of games. Of course he did. Everybody has, but 
he was able to be more consistently great on a night in and night out basis than anyone I've ever seen play the game. Talking about greatness, I got to be there for some of those great series of the Knicks versus the Pacers in the 90s. You guys played each other in six playoff series through the 90s. Can you tell me what what stands out to you most vividly? Because we are an Indiana Hoosiers podcast, but there's plenty of Indiana Pacers fans listening like myself. What to you were the defining moments of that series, both as an assistant coach and as a head coach? The first one, when I was an assistant, you know, greatness in coaching, uh, Larry Brown and Pat Riley, incredible, right? So great leaders. Um, we played a little bit differently, but they believed in the same things, playing hard and smart and tough and demanded such from their teams. And then the physicality of both teams was immense. You had the Davis guys, uh, the size of Smiths, you know, Derek McKee. Uh, the front lines were huge back then. Uh, everybody upsize versus A, which was downsize. Uh, and then, you know, just how much one play, one bounce of the ball, one foul call can go your way and change, change the course of a series, uh, a game, and ultimately a season. And those series were always hard fought, incredibly competitive, uh, and came down to one shot, one bounce, one call. If Antonio Davis and Dale Davis fought Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason, who would win? I would see there'd be four losers because everybody <laughs> would come out of it, you know, compromised because there would be no quit, you know, like, and, and listen, if you want to like, like the Davises, what I respected so much about them, right. And you watch today, the incessant whining on every ball back then, all these Brahma bulls are banging into each other and no one's looking to the referee to come to the rescue. I, I loved that part of it. Uh, there was competition, there was physicality, but there wasn't as much. I mean, everybody would get on officials at times, you know, Reggie doing his thing, flopping around and begging for calls. Uh, but for the most part, there was less of that then than there is now. And sometimes, I don't know how you guys feel watching games, it can be unseemly. It's It's out of control. Oh, I oh, totally agree. I hate it. Yeah. I, it, I, part it, of me wishes the rest would just call technical immediately when there's whining. I, I blame the league office and the officials for what they have allowed to let go. I don't know if you watched the end of the Warrior-Timberwolves game from the other night. It was, it was egregious. Egregious. Uh, all right. So the calls were awful, okay? I know the NBA came out with, in their two-minute report and said, oh, we made all the right calls. But, you know, to me – they messed that up too, okay? But what took place after Curry made the three to tie it was something I have to say I'd never seen before in the NBA. I watched a team taunt the official who disallowed Dur the Durant point Yeah, play. the Durant and one, right. Yeah. Yeah, they were pointing at him. I mean, Curry. They were mocking him. Curry was running and, around and, the court pointing at him, pointing at him. Yes, and to me, the foul call that they then called on Durant that led to the free throw that won Minnesota the game, that was a horrible call. Horrible. It would be like the uncatchable pass in football being ruled pass interference, right? Mm. So, But that was, to me, Leon Woods 
saying, I'm not taking that anymore. I'm looking for a reason uh, to screw that team. But I would have rather him, instead of do that, have the guts to call. Like, they should have called a technical foul immediately. Multiple technical fouls. I seriously have never seen a team taunt a referee like that. I, and I don't know what we're doing as a league or as officials. Like, they'd have to suspend me as an official before I allowed that to happen to myself. Totally. And I know we always say to, to the officials, you don't decide the game. Well, guess what? I'm not deciding. I'm reacting. I'll let a little emotion go on a real call. You want to come up to me and MF me, like, as you walk by and say I blew it? That's one thing. You basically and your teammates dancing around me, pointing at me? No, no. I'm not taking that. All right. I want to go back for a second because – your career astounds me. So you're a young guy as an assistant coach at Providence. You get this break to be an assistant coach with the Knicks, and you move yourself up from, like you said, helping at the beginning on like the end of the advanced scout team. But then you become a real assistant coach, assisting these great coaches, and especially Pat Riley. And then, well, and Donnie Nelson, you even got a, almost a full season under the all-time coaching win leader. And, and don't forget John McLeod as well, who sure. coached at Notre Dame and one of the great coaches and gentlemen we've ever seen in professional basketball. No one could have coached for more better people than I did. So you, you've been blessed with these incredible mentors. But then on March 8th, 1996, when Jeff Van Gundy is only 34 years old, you get the head coaching job of the New York Knicks. Now, I know where I was in my life at 34 years old. And had somebody given me the equivalent job, not given me, had I earned the equivalent job, I, I don't know if I would have been able to, behind the scenes, maintain my composure. I mean, you are the head coach of one of the most storied, well-known, famous franchises in all of sports. What did that feel like? Was it so crazy that you couldn't even put it in perspective? Or what? just walk us through that. Well, again, it shows you how the standards in, in New York have changed. Don Nelson was our head coach. I believe we were 34 and 25 um, at the time. Charles Oakley had been out six weeks. So we're 34 and 25, nine games over, and Don Nelson gets fired. Right. Now think about that. Like in the first year of a five-year contract, if I'm not mistaken, right? So – you're not taking I was I was I was taking over in an incredible situation. And and then you go to this. Uh, you were right. I, I didn't I was given the job. I hadn't earned it. I hadn't done anything to earn it. Um but it's Oh, an come on job. now, Jeff. You'd been an assistant for what, six years at that point? Like Mr. Dolan. Yeah, but guess what? There have been other there have been better coaches who had been toiling as assistants uh in the NBA for two decades, right? So then and, why and you? you? Why did Mr. Dolan yeah, pick Cause you? I was there. I was there. <laughs> you know, I was, I, no, I was there. That's it. That's it. That's how it is. I was, I was coach Nelson's top assistant. Um, were you so, scared? Yeah. Were you scared? Well, our first game, we were playing an awful 76ers team and we got blown out. It was the same night I got the job. And then we had a bus ride back from Philly uh, to New York, and we were playing on Sunday afternoon those NBC triple headers, right? Yeah, sure. And we were playing what turned out to be 
the 72 and 10 Bulls. And so I don't know if they had, had lost eight games at that time or whatever it was. So on that bus ride back after losing to it, just a horrific Philly team. And our next, you know, in 36 hours or whatever it was, 40 hours we were playing uh, the 72 and 10 Bulls. I would say there was a lot of doubt that creeped in. And, um, and that's why you have to, to be able to sustain yourself in this league, you have to have the right best player. And fortunately at that time we did, we had Patrick Ewing and it wasn't that he respected me. He respected the position of the head coach. So even as I was making mistakes, this guy was so dedicated, so loyal, um, so team oriented that he carried us through. And we had, you know, Derek Harper and Charles Oakley and John Starks, you know, we had a bunch of guys that were tough, competitive, but more importantly for me at that time, they were, they knew I was going to make mistakes and I did. And they covered up for my mistakes through their good play. That's an incredible way to learn coaching. You're not, you're learning from your mistakes, but not having to pay the ultimate price by losing games because of these great players. Now, for many of these players that had been in the organization for a long time, you were their peer from an age perspective. I mean, you're basically the same age as them. How hard is that to go from being an assistant coach where you have much different responsibilities, but you always had this kind of gravitas-laden head coach in Pat Riley or Don Nelson or McLeod, like you talked about, and now you're the guy telling people that are your age what to do. Was it hard to earn their respect to go from assistant to head? Well, I think players um, respect your – I don't think they really care if you played or didn't play, you know, tall, short, black, white, none of that, right? They want to know if you can help them and you can help the team win, right? So I thought my background with them was good. I also thought the amount of responsibility that each of the head coaches gave me along the way put me in front of the team more um, from a standpoint of speaking. So I was able to try to develop my voice and my coaching voice. Uh, and yeah, and then I think the, the biggest thing was these guys were winners, but they were also incredibly respectful of the head coaching position. It wouldn't have mattered if it was me or someone else. They respected that position. So I was younger than some uh, was like Ewing and I, um, I think I'm six months older than Patrick. Uh, so we were the same age. And one thing I, I learned early on watching these other great head coaches is that it wasn't like it was for Rick Pitino at Providence where he was the dictator and we, and everybody else was there to, you know, just do what he said it, in the NBA. It was more a partnership. And I think when you learn that and you you learn that you have a job to do and part of your job is to make tough decisions, the players, if they if they respect the position of the head coach, understand that you're going to have to make some tough decisions. So uh, that wasn't the hard part. Uh, the hard part was not being able to get them over the hump and win a championship uh, because we really had good teams in we had great competitors, and we had a committed, committed group. Still to this day, I feel remorse that I wasn't able to do more uh, to help those guys ultimately win championships. Now, when you talk about tough decisions, 
how tough a decision was it to decide to jump onto Alonzo Mourning's leg or in front of Marcus Camby's head? Let's go one by one. <laughs> yeah. Let's go take, one by one. Please here. take us through both of those incidents as you remember. Let's them. start with Zoe. Let's start with the the the, yeah. the Zoe. So, so obviously that was a heated rivalry, um, and um, not sure. Like, what well, one thing I am sure about is you know how criminals plead temporary insanity, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Like, that's the only thing I have for you on the Alonzo Morning thing, right? Temporary insanity, because I don't remember, I didn't remember anything other than running out there. And Larry Johnson, the reason I fell down his leg was Larry Johnson, like, hit me with a glancing blow before he hit Morning. And I'm like, and I just, like, toppled over, right? And then, <laughs> thankfully, Morning was kind enough not to stomp me to death. And Oakley got got me out of there. And then Oakley, you know, he gave me the form because he was between me and Morning. Like, then I could act like the tough guy, like you see in so many NBA fights, like I really want to get back in there. Um, and Oakley was sort of smirking at me like, you know, it was funny when you look back. But uh, so I got temporary insanity for you on the first. But wait, on wait, wait, second, wait, 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 before you move on, before you move on. You right. had a death grip on his leg. I mean, that was incredible. You were off the ground as he was lifting his leg up, which, by the way, also says that you weigh about a buck oh five because he was lifting his leg like he was doing leg curls at the gym. Yeah, I don't even know if he knew I was there. You know, like that, <laughs> you're actually you're thinking like you're like in the midst of this and like, you know, but the thing just to go back is like it was a heated rivalry, uh, Ewing and Morning. Uh, my brother was on the other bench with Pat, you know, uh, the animosity was real, right? Well, um, well I, and... I want to ask you about that though, because, because before we go to the Camby one, we, we joked around a little bit earlier about how Ward and I hate everybody that's not Indiana. And there are some that we really hate like Purdue and Kentucky and, you know, things like that, Louisville, but. Did, it seemed like you genuinely hated the Bulls. It seemed like you genuinely genuinely hated the Pacers and hated the Heat. Did you feel real animosity towards those organizations and some of the players? Oh, it was beautiful back then. Like, the absolute contempt that each team had for the other, it, it drove true rivalries. We weren't exchanging jerseys. <laughs> And hugging after games. Listen, this is what, like, this is what the NBA, like, these, like, fierce rivalries, right? Like, I, I'll give you one. Like, so, P.J. Brown, remember, he's supposed to, my brother says he's one of the finest people he's ever coached. And so, he picked up Charlie Ward and dumped him on his head, started a brawl, then we lost guys to suspension, right? So, that was in, like, I'm going to say, 96? 96 97 maybe and so now fast forward like 2008 i've never spoken to pj brown since then i'm now broadcasting we're doing the finals pj brown's on the Celtics, and where our dressing room is is in the same hallway as the celtics so i'm coming out of mine and this is pregame and he's walking down the hallway this is like 12 years later and we're the only two people in the hallway and we walk right past each other 
like the other one doesn't exist. And it was awesome. I was so I was so pumped up as I was doing that game because I'm like, this guy is a guy I want to take into uh, like a competition. Like that's those, those guys who have long memories. And so you look back at, at those times, the, the Bulls and us, the Pacers and us, but it was, it wasn't just us against them. They against each other, you know, the Bulls and the Heat, the Bulls and the Pacers. Yeah. You know, did Reggie, Miller push Reg- off on the three, you know, all that stuff. No, he it's tripped. Great. He tripped. He tripped. That, that I was, agree. That was nothing. Oh, you do? Okay. I oh, Totally. Did like, you ever? Did like, you ever... I love when the Bulls, I love when the Bulls, like back then, used to cry about like calls or non-calls. They got like every benefit of the doubt. 99 out of 100. And on the one they didn't get, they complained on. Right, wait, I got to ask you before. I got to ask you about this since we're right there talking about Michael and, and the calls and whining about calls. You talked a little bit about mistakes that you made on the job as a head coach. Would you say one yeah. of those mistakes was calling Michael Jordan a con man? You know, I don't. <laughs> I don't. All right, so walk no, us and, through and that. I, I say the, the wording might have been incorrect, but the whole point was, and you know, it's so different now, right? So I actually said that on a, was a I didn't realize it was a taped radio uh, um, interview, but it had to be like maybe, I'm going to say seven days before, a week before we played them. And I thought nothing about it. And then, you know, back then they didn't play it right away. They held it to the day of the game that we played them. And uh, so... You know, I said what I said, and the point was, we got to go after him as hard as we go after everybody else. And I thought we we sort of softened up when we were around him because he was an icon and and he's the best player in the game, and he befriended these guys, right? So, so I say what I say, and uh, you know, now we're playing him, and he gets the score was eighty eight eighty seven, so. I would have been a, a genius if he, if he would have missed one more shot, right? Everybody would have said, oh, what a motivator. But because he made it, I was the biggest fool of all time. We're in Chicago. And I don't know if you guys remember the old Chicago Stadium. I sure. remember but it well. You have, yeah, you have to cross to get to your locker room. Your bench had to walk and cross paths with theirs and, and vice versa. So he's MFing me um, after he made the shot to put him up. And, uh, and so now we lose and it's at the buzzer. We lose by one and I'm walking off the floor and he's like, you know, coming from the other end and he is like right in my path. So there's no way out of it. So he walks by me. He doesn't stop, but he MFs me. I keep looking straight ahead and here we go. So now we go and, um, we go and the next night we're playing or we have a day off. We, we fly to Indiana that night and the next day we're going to play Indiana. So we go to the game or we go the, that night between, you know, that food court in that mall in Indiana, right sure. downtown. Yeah. Yeah. The circle yeah. center mall. Circle center. So I'm, I, I'm walking there like to get something to eat and just so happens everybody on our team is there. Right. And so they call me over. Right. And, and, and Stark says, Hey, Jeff, how about this? The next time you want to, like, go at somebody, go at somebody that can't get 55. And how about this? Don't go at my mat. You don't have to feel the wrath. 
And so it was a great learning lesson for me not to put ourselves in or or not to put what I want to put out there ahead of, you know, winning the game. And um, so, yeah, my players took me to task. But the funny part is the next day at the game, we're playing Indiana. I don't know if you guys remember the uh, veteran official, Mike Mathis. Well, back then you could have a different relationship with officials. Um, it wasn't as corporate. The old-time guys just they officiated with personality, and I liked it. So, yeah, Jeff, he said, Jeff, you had a rough night. Um, and I said, yeah, Jordan went pretty hard at me. And he said, uh, don't, don't be as concerned about your players softening up around him. Hold us officials to a high standard because I've refereed a number of games with officials who just want to be his friend. And I thought it was a startling admission. I liked the rope that officials back then were given to use their personalities to call the games and control the games. So it's time to move on from New York. I've read you guys were doing pretty well that season. It was pretty early in the season, and you decided to hang it up. And by the way, you went to the playoffs every year you coached the Knicks. Now, I read that you regretted that decision. Is that does that hold true? Do you do you still wish maybe you hadn't left New York that way? Yeah, I think that's without question. You know, I, there was a lot going on that year. Uh, I'm not sure how how much it all played a part. Nine eleven, my best my best friend dying in 9-11. The Knicks, you know, sometimes at jobs, you just, you just know, like they had let my boss, Dave Checkets go uh, the previous spring. And when you sort of know that an organization is tired of you, I'd been there 13 years, six and a half as a assistant, six and a half as a head coach. And, so that's what I thought. I left. I should have either I should have waited to the end of the year. Uh, I think maybe my perspective would have changed by that time. Um, but I did what I did, and uh, certainly, um, you know, it was an emotional decision because I'd been there. You know, that's a lifetime when it comes to professional sports. Thirteen years in one spot, and in the city with the most brutal media lens humanly possible for your first head coaching gig to be in New York City for a storied franchise. It's amazing you escaped with your sanity, or maybe you didn't. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> well, no, you know what's interesting about the media? I, I thought the media was very, very fair to me there, as were the fans. You know, the, th- the thing about New York is the fans, they're incredibly supportive if you play hard. You know, like, they, they want results, but they're not as results-driven as you would think um, back then. They just wanted, like, all-out effort. And that's what our teams gave, you know. That's why they uh, our players back then were so beloved, because uh, they resonated with our fans. As far as the media, though, I think most were really fair. But the tabloid, the Times, you know, they would have fun with your name, and they would, you know, that's the thing that was hard sometimes, like, you know, I, I think back, I I have this back page still where uh, it, the headline was, it would never go over in today's um, times, but it said, bad news for Jeff, um, N-O-O-S-E. And yeah. they had a, a noose around my neck, like saying I was going to get fired, right? And then, you know, back up the van, you know, like all these different ones. And I've, I found it like... If it wasn't your name, it would be funny. But I, I just thought, like, 
the media was a little tougher back then. I think for whatever reason, because I think the media has changed as much as our game has changed and as much as the players have changed, because the media now is not hard on players. They're only hard on coaches because they use the players and their agents for uh, sourced information. So they don't give uh, critiques of players like they once did. I mean, they used to be hard on players. Right. Now, even in New York, they're very, very e easy on players. I would say Philly is much harder on its teams than New York is right now. Well, by the way, I would argue Bloomington, Indiana is too hard on uh, on our team at times. But well, the fans are. I don't sure. think the journalists. That's are. true. Although some do. But let's. I I do want to ask you about. So you leave New York, but your boss in New York is one of the most derided bosses of any ownership group of any professional sports team today. Dolan, what was he like? Well, he didn't come in. Uh, was it still check it his, when you were well, there? Well, check it. So, so, but the Dolans began to own the team, but it was uh, the dad who said it at the top, right? And then transferred uh, at some point, I think around 97, uh, to Jim Dolan, his son. Right. And, and, but I always had this buffer. Like, I never had any dealings really with ownership. You know, Dave Checkett's would come to me with stuff. And I think there was a buffer between me and ownership and ownership and I, and then when they fired Dave, I think it became a little bit harder. Um, and you know, we had a little bit more, uh, conflict, which is probably natural because I think the frustration level was high on my part that we weren't getting over the top and on the ownership's par uh, part, that we weren't uh, getting over the top as well. So, you know, I, I don't look at it as how it ended as much as, man, what a great run to last there 13 years because the last 13 years in New York is like dog years. You know, that's a long time, and I was fortunate to do it. So then you move on to Houston, and you get a coach, Yao and Tracy McGrady. What was that like? Just you, you had a little time off, and then you show up there – contrasted to the New York experience and, and what was your attitude then with this sort of second lease on head, co head coaching life in the NBA? Well, I was off one year. I worked for TNT uh, with Marv Albert and Mike Fratello. Then I got the Houston job and uh, uh, it was going into Yao's second year. And then the following season, we traded for uh, McGrady. Uh, Yao is uh, the finest uh person you could ever want to coach. Yao is one of those guys who truly is as happy for someone else's success as his own. He was the Shaq at that time was the best center. Um, and the gap between Shaq and Yao uh, was less than it was between Yao and the third best center, which was Dwight Howard. Yao was that good. He was an absolute dominant offensive player that was just beset by uh, reoccurring lower extremity injuries. Um, but what a, what a player, what a person, philanthropist, the whole thing. And then McGrady belonged in the Hall of Fame. And I always say this about LeBron James. LeBron James may well at some point become the all-time leading scorer in NBA history, and that's not even his best quality. You know, his passing is his best quality. McGrady was 
a two-time scoring champion in our league. And like LeBron James, that wasn't his best quality. He is one of the most gifted passers uh, you would ever want to see. And when you wanted, you needed to get stops late in the last five to eight minutes, an incredible, incredible defender. So I was really fortunate, not only with those two guys, but the guys we had in Houston, um, we may not have had enough athletic talent, but we were never short of uh, our effort and our energy and our desire to win. We had great, great uh, character there. Shane Battier, Rafer Alston, like incredible, incredible people. Tracy McGrady uh, said something about you. I saw in an interview with him or when he was commenting on one of the post shows at, uh, of the NBA that I thought was great. He said that when you were in Houston with him, that you several times in front of everyone went one by one to each team member and defined their role on the team. Like you defined it for them and everyone else knew what their role was as well. Can you talk right, that's about a, that? Yeah. That was a Pat Riley thing. Uh, he wasn't a fan of one-on-one meetings as much as he was a fan of telling everybody what he was thinking in front of everybody. So there was no, nothing misconstrued. And so as far as the role definition, you know, it's coach's job to make tough decisions about role definition. Uh, and it's a player's job uh, to accept that role and do that role as well as he can. And basically everybody shares the same role defensively and rebounding wise, right? Because everybody has to commit to that end of the floor. Where teams can have challenges is wherever, you know, minutes, shots, and offensive involvement. So if you're a Houston Rocket right now, if you're not James Harden or Chris Paul, and Mike D'Antoni has done it fantastic, but he said, these are two horses. You guys better by your ability to space the floor, knock down shots, but you're not going to have like primary ball handling, you know, responsibilities. And I think that's your job as a coach. We're going to rotate these guys. Everyone else needs to be ready. Whether it's a nine man rotation, 10 man rotation, eight and a half man rotation, whatever you think, I think it's incredible or important um, to your success and your development of chemistry that everybody knows Everybody's important, but everybody's going to have a little bit different role offensively. Okay, so Jeff, we would be remiss here in our final moments. We've got to ask you about Archie Miller. What do you think about him as a coach and a fit at Indiana University going forward? I think he's a terrific fit. I thought I was fortunate enough to see him practice when he was at Dayton. Uh, This is a smart, intense, passionate, uh, incredibly gifted teacher of the game. Uh, that you guys were able to get. Uh, I think, you know, Indiana basketball is a unique situation where they're a great, great job. But at times, I think the expectations of the coach post Bob Knight is not as fair uh, to what the competition is. And so not every year is going to be a great year, uh, but you have the right guy leading your team. What what do, is your take just overall on if you're not a Kentucky and you're not a Duke and the one and dones, what do you do in college basketball? Is it really just get old, stay old? Well, it, that's become the popular refrain. Uh, I think that's a, a huge part of it. 
uh, as long as they're good players. You know, a lot of players just get old and they stink, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, if they're good players, and I think you have to find your niche. Listen, everybody tries so hard in college basketball defensively. You don't walk out and watch a college basketball game where you say, you know what, if they would just play harder, right? That's not the The hardest thing is to find a way to play good, sound offense, how much freedom to give your team. And you got to find perimeter players that have a term that they use in the NBA, I'm sure they use it in college too, called wiggle, that have a game off the dribble, like the little point guard from Howard, right? Yeah. Like they may not have anything, and then they run a pick and roll, and he's got a game. He's not like this like A to B point guard. He's like got shiftiness shiftiness and craftiness and skill level and that, I think that's it's hard the point guard from auburn right the point guard from auburn yeah you're talking about yeah 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 and so it's hard to find those type of guys right and so i think you know for indiana this year right it was a struggle on offense i mean a yeah. struggle yeah and, <laughs> and and they've got to find like that's why i never pay attention to five star four star three star um like I watch these guys who are overlooked. Like what was what was Carson Edwards coming out of high school? Like yeah. what was like, he? I think he was just inside the top two hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what? He's got a game, right? Mm-hmm. And he and it's probably because he developed there, he got better. So a lot of it is, you know, is that guy love the game? Because only the guys that love the game make great improvements. If you don't love the game, you'll never put it as much into the game as you need to to improve. So you got to find those guys who love it, but also who, who, again, to evaluate, you have to evaluate, forget what everybody else says. Evaluate for your team and, and recruit offense and teach defense. It's mm-hmm. the same way in the NBA. You draft offense and you try to hopefully get them to play good defense as well but it's harder to try to take a good defensive player and teach him offense than it is to take a good and gifted offensive player and try to teach him defense i have one uh final question before we wrap it up here how bad is a college head coaching job compared to an nba head coaching job you know it's funny you say that because i was just talking when i came into the nba coaching in the nba was always was I thought a superior job forgetting the money uh, you got to coach more basketball think about all the different all the the more practices and shoot arounds in games it was basketball all the time right and in college they had such rules you know you can't work with them here this time and that time and then the 20 hour a week rule and all of those rules to prevent you from helping your players well now flip it 15 years later, the NBA, no one wants to practice. No one wants to shoot around. A lot of stars don't even want to play in a lot of the games, right? And, and the college game has become where it's, you know, you can practice basically year-round now. So I think in those terms, college jobs are better now if you really love teaching. The thing that makes a college job awful is the recruiting. We all know that we all know that cheating occurs, right? We all know that NCAA 
cannot catch the ones that cheat. And so every team has a different payroll and a different salary cap. And if you try to do it by the rules, right, it's going to be even harder. And you're going to be labeled as a, quote, non-recruiter many times. You couldn't close the deal. When closing the deal usually requires finances, okay? And so I propose that we take out the recruiting from the Power Five or Six Conference and we make a draft. And you have to put your name into the draft if you want to go to one of those schools. And then we hold like an NBA-style draft with the Power Five conferences. And you don't get to pick your school. We pick it for you. Are players paid? Well, you're going to save so much with all the stuff that you save in recruiting, you can pay them, right? Or maybe you could just have the coaches make $500,000 less and divvy it up uh, to the players. Right. That might be a novel idea, too. But um, the point is, is as long as there's recruiting, there's going to be cheating. And as long as there's cheating, there's going to be some that profit from it and some that don't. And don't tell me that cheating uh, doesn't impact, uh, you know, it's, it's really a non-impact uh, offense because it impacts coaches' lives that get fired because they're trying to do it uh, the straight and narrow. So I, I think college basketball in that way, in the recruiting thing, uh, it's still a mess, but no one will say what a mess it is because we all want to believe in the hype of student athlete and player coach relationship. And we're here for relationships um, instead of it being what it's really about, which is money and winning. Will we ever get to see you on the sidelines as the head coach of an NBA team or a college team from this point forward? You know, the good thing, I ne- I don't give any thought to it. If something ever comes about, you know, there's been some jobs offered to me that I didn't think were a good fit. Uh, there were others that I pursued that they didn't think I was the right choice. So you never know if something good hap- you know, occurs, then sure, it could happen. But the one thing, when you have a good job, uh, you don't sit there and lament uh, other possibilities as much because you're content with the job you have. Well, I got to say, and the job that you have, you do it so well. And what it is for me as a viewer, and I'm sure for millions of others, it's the joy you have, the fun you have watching the game and talking about the game to your co-hosts or whoever uh, you're interacting with. It doesn't matter who's playing. If you're on the call, I'm watching the game and having a blast, and I just want to thank you for making so many otherwise monotonous regular season NBA games a total blast to listen to. I appreciate that. We try hard. Well, it is apparent, and I will say this, that uh, if if I could choose who my coaches would be, I would love to have a team coached by Jeff Van Gundy because Jeff Van Gundy's got some wiggle in his game. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, we just want to thank you so much for taking the time, man. It was really fun talking to you and we wish you nothing but the best, man. I appreciate it. Here's to IU finding more wiggles for their offensive game next year. God, we need it. It won't, it won't be hard to improve it. Amen. All right. Take, take care, care Jeff. See Thanks. you, man. Jeff Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, Gundy. NBA coach. Oh, man, I'm just, you know, I was afraid I might dork out on that one. Yeah, man, he's awesome. He's just so much fun. He's a real guy. He just makes me so happy. 
And and when you said we were going to have this opportunity, it made me happy from the moment you mentioned it all the way through this moment. Because it's true. I watch games and I see him sitting on the court with Mark Jackson and Breen before the game starts. And I'm like, I'm in. I don't care if a team is up by 30. If Jeff is talking and, and busting chops with Mark, I'm going to enjoy this. I was looking at clips of him, you know, in preparation for this. We didn't get to talk to him about some of his great lines, but... He stole this line from somebody, but I've never heard him. I've never heard the original. He said that defense, he was talking about some team playing good defense, and he said it's the mother in law defense, constant harassment and assault, <laughs> <laughs> which I just love. He also said there was a, there was during a game that they went to, uh, I think it was Israel. Gutierrez, I oh, think yeah. that's his name. And they were talking about Clay Thompson. And he said Clay Thompson is not a great defensive player. And Jeff Van Gundy said, I wrote it down because it was such a great quote. He said, when I go to the writers to tell me who can guard in this league, I'll put a gun to my own head. <laughs> I mean, he just makes everything enjoyable. He's such a good guy. Well, and, and so insightful because you, you have the entertainment value on one hand, but you're always learning more about the game, appreciating more about the game. Just there at the end when he said, Recruit for offense and teach defense. Right, that kind of teach offense. It kind of scared me about what's going on with our recruiting because look, nobody's talking about how great Trace is at scoring mm. points. Eh, no, nobody's expecting no, him but, really to contribute next year. Armand, same thing. People, oh, he's going to be able to defend. Yeah, he got more points fair. this year as a senior. I agree with you on Armand with Trace. The guy is a little bit of a freakish athlete for the position that he's in. He'll he'll he's uh, he, they look at him as a guy who can eventually be a pretty dominant offensive player. I think you're right though. It's it doesn't seem like we're an offensive minded team. We're not. And Archie is not an offensive minded coach. And as we have been told from people close to it, just not sure if Archie ever is the guy to coach a great offense. And we'll see. So look, at least if he's not schematically. You know he needs he needs to recruit that way, right? Well, we'll see. I mean, man, it's tough, right? It's just tough because I would like to see the game change. We talked about it with Jeff a little bit. I, I think that what they did in the NIT with the rule change of of making the three point line move it back about a foot and a half or whatever it was, and it, and making the lane bigger, I think that's all good. I hate watching Big Ten games on a take everybody's name off their jerseys and you're just watching basketball. Watching Big Ten games is brutal. I mean, when I see the scores go by of Big Ten games and it's 24 to 21 at halftime, I, it's like it just pains me. And then I see ACC games in the 40s routinely at halftime. It's just bad basketball. Well, it's it's interesting, I think, in terms of the way you're pushing that three-point line out. You know, whether whether you physically do it like they did in the NIT or it's just something college players and even high school players are starting to do because they're watching the pros. When you see Carson Edwards launching it up, like basically in between the three-point line and that the half-court line, you got Trey Young now, right? I, I think these players are growing up watching Steph Curry, and how quickly is that going to translate to the ability for more players to be able to do that at lower levels? Yeah, I also think it translates to, though, a little bit what Jeff was talking about. It translates to a lot more players who can't do it trying. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and that's so like, you get you get increased bad and increased good, but I think you've got to move the line back because there's a psychological barrier to where the line is. That's where you kind of use 
it's very difficult for a coach to stay, to say start our offense one foot behind the the three point line. You see the line, so moving it back and expanding the lane, and the lane has real implications because right. that's three seconds. Yeah, and so, keep it open. And, right. So I and you can't you can't move the lane out without expanding the three point line because if you expand the the lane, your lane is too close to the current college three point line. Sure, sure. So I hope they do institute those rules. And I agree with him. Go down to a twenty four second shot clock. I also like the offensive rebound. If you go down to a twenty four second, you don't need to do this rule. But I like the rule in the NIT that offensive rebound goes to twenty on the shot clock instead of thirty. Yes. I like that. But Look, we just don't know with Archie, but let's talk about But but Jeff Jeff is very Jeff confident. Likes him. And and I think, you know, one thing we try to bring here to the listeners is uh real expert opinions on the coach we have because we're all on the forums, on the text chains, on the email chains with our friends, people freaking out after year 2 and we keep trying to come back to like, hey, let's listen to people who know so much more than we do. And I don't think Van Gundy's going to pull any punches. I think he's going to give us an honest assessment. And even talking to you privately before this podcast, he told you he really liked Archie. He does. I, I don't think we can go back into a time machine mm-hmm. and go to Tom Crean's second year. I think if we interviewed a lot of the similar people, I don't think you would have a lot of people trouncing Tom Crean for being a terrible coach in year two at Indiana. I think there's some that's just kind of a respect, you know. Two years is not enough to tell. It's not right, but but we're talking about like with the Crean era, it was because it was devastated, devastated by the arsonist, burned down. So I think everybody was going to give him. But I'm saying Tom Crean, remove that. Any coach in year two, unless you are Billy Gillespie, who turned it into a dumpster fire, you know, or something like that. Matt Doherty. Yeah, I I think that most coaches, the vast majority, would be given the benefit of the doubt after two years. What would be interesting is if we did all these conversations a year from now. Mm -hmm. And if in a year from now, Indiana's 16 and 15 and misses the postseason again, misses the NCAA again, I'm curious if if those conversations change because that hot seat is going to get real warm, in my opinion, if year three looks a lot like year two. To Jeff's point, you know, he said that it's rare that you find – anybody looking at a college game going, wow, they're not playing hard. When the truth is, a lot of the criticism this year on Indiana was it didn't look like they were yeah, playing hard, which which that. is more egregious given what Jeff said, that yeah. most colleges, you just have a bunch of kids who are so happy to be playing Division One basketball for any of these schools. We're not talking about the one-and-dones here. We're talking about kids who have worked their asses off to get a scholarship. I think – Archie's team next year could have the same record as this year's team and go just as far in the NIT. But if it looks different, right. if it looks like they are just leaving it all out on the floor, if some roster things happen that, yeah, yeah, that change people, it up. People, I think, will understand the talent issue next year. So it's got to be like, all right, well, if we're taking a step back in talent, you know, at least developed talent, you know, Juwan for Trace. Uh, Armand for Romeo. I, I think people are going to be like, well, that's fine if it looks more like a team. If we see a team more together on the defensive end, a team that has a better understanding of their roles, as Jeff would have said, Fair. on the offensive end. Because clearly this year, I mean, with the with the exception of Jawan, who understood his role, and Romeo, I mean, Romeo's role was to score. So when he got the ball, when he got the ball, he tried to drive and score. But I think the great frustration is just seeing this incredibly talented kid sitting over in the corner for 15 seconds yeah, at I a agree. time. And Brian Snow touched on it a little bit when he talked about 
uh, Juwan and Romeo and what their number one priority was. And this is not casting aspersions on either guy. But when you're Romeo, who knows you're going to be a one and done, and when you're Juwan, who tested the NBA waters a year before, and this is your last year to audition for the NBA, right. clearly your livelihood is at stake. And there is something that just makes you go, well, I, I have to audition for them. For both guys, that meant showing they could hit threes. And for both guys, neither could on a reliable, consistent level. They both shot under 30% from three. You think that's why Justin Smith was throwing those up too? I don't know. I mean, look, I I rarely thought – you know I have problems with Justin's game. He rarely, if ever, took a contested three. Right. And he didn't take that many. But Jawan didn't take contested threes. That's fair. That that was like – But Jawan took a bunch of them. He did. Jawan did not pass up many open threes. Justin passed up many more than he took. My my point is, Indiana shot about 643 pointers this year. Romeo and Jawan accounted for 250 of them, mm. about, and that's under 30 percent. So when we talk about how bad our three point shooting is, and it was this year, so much of it is defined by the fact that you had two guys who were kind of leading in the volume category that couldn't shoot threes. Get rid of those guys. If Devante, Rob, and Al are yeah. the ones shooting, well, your your percentage immediately goes up to at least 33 34%. Yeah. So if you could get Demisey coming in for some spot minutes next year, Armand. Or, or just if or Al. Hunter? Hunter, because yeah, sure. he's supposed to be able to shoot from the outside. And just if Al and Rob make modest improvements in their three-point shooting, you go from being one of the, the worst three-point shooting team in Indiana history in the in the entire country and one of the one of the worst in the country not the worst but we were the worst Indiana shooting team ever like yeah over 300 correct. in the rankings totally correct but get rid of Juwan and Romeo under 30 percent shooting a high volume have Al and uh Rob make improvements I'm not even going to say Devante needs to improve he ended up 42 percent just stay right there just buddy. stay around there stay around 40 all of a sudden you become a decent three-point shooting team so and and then hopefully we find a transfer, a grad Brunk, transfer. Brunk. Or, well, Brunk can't shoot threes. No, but. no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm saying in terms of the inside-out game. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because if we have three— And really, Duran can pass. Yeah, if we have three guards get legitimately hit three-pointers and have a decent handle, and you've got Duran down there, and you've got Trace down there, and maybe a Brunk down there— we're talking about, you know, a pretty decent inside-out game. I totally agree with that. So we'll see. And look, if we get a, if we get a grad— transfer who can shoot you know if you get your nick zeisloft if you get your even max biefeld could shoot threes like the guy had a high percentage marquette level uh evan fitzner yeah right (laughs) we will see so anyway it was so cool to talk to somebody with nba pedigree and kind of that perspective on the college game like that that guy should be in the basketball hall of fame between his contributions as a coach and a color commentator. He has been, I mean, what they did, they've done like seven or eight NBA finals. Like Jeff Van Gundy is a very, very, very crucial part of the fabric of the NBA of the last 25 years. That's fair. And look, we didn't get to talk at all about what he's doing with team USA now and USA basketball. Won the gold. Yeah. Well, yeah. In the, in the qualifying, right. And beat Argentina, which was a team full of pros, but Jeff, is part of Team USA Basketball, while Greg Popovich is during the year, uh, Jeff Van Gundy is coaching G League players 
in these international events to qualify Team USA, which has the NBA players in these bigger events later on. For Pop, to hand it over for to Pop. Pop. Yeah. And and he's winning. And and he's just a great basketball mind. It is awesome to pick the brain of a great basketball mind. I remembered what I was going to say oh, like 10 minutes ago. Let's hear it. That he said he thought, for pure love of the game, college basketball is better than NBA now. Well, but except, yes, but then, but then he... Caveats it with recruiting. Sure, sure. But at the same time, he really, his vote was that if you just love the game of basketball and you want to teach it, you should be a college coach. So basically what that's saying is that if it doesn't work out with Archie, we'll definitely get him or Brad Stevens. Him meaning Jeff Van Gundy. Right. Right. (laughs) Right now, if you could have Jeff Van Gundy be the head coach of Indiana University Uh, basketball, would you do it? No. No, and I love Jeff, but I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Because you have... Brad Brad Stevens? Uh, come on. <laughs> what are you doing? There is no point to this conversation. Uh, I love Jeff Van Gundy, but so much of college basketball is recruiting, and mm-hmm. Jeff's never done it. So having anybody who has never done it and then have to step in and do it at the highest possible level, I just don't know. I mean, look, we Archie's been doing it at a mid-major level, and we don't know if he can do it. Like, well, he had a lot of experience, though, at Ohio State and Xavier. No, I know, and I'm saying yeah, yeah. we don't know yet if it's going to work out 100% at Indiana. Right. We don't. I mean, no. he's got to stack really good classes. And his first class is is an incomplete at best. Like, at best, it's an incomplete. Romeo is Romeo. You could almost not ca- count Romeo as part of the class because it will not impact the program going forward. Uh, you could argue it impacts it negatively, but we can get into that on a separate Or, or positively that we have been able to get Trace. We got know. Trace. Yeah. Okay. We'll I, see. I personally don't to be buy, determined. And I personally do not buy that Romeo's commitment meant Trace's commitment, meaning if Romeo wasn't there and Archie still built the relationship, everything I have heard about Archie's relationship with Trace is that it was incredible. Mm. That didn't have anything to do with Romeo. Yeah. The idea that Romeo made it cool to commit to Indiana, okay, maybe for one player. It sure didn't help Keon. Nope. So I, I, but Trace I, didn't help Keon either. No, well, he didn't. At least that, that's, kind of the, that's kind of my point. That yeah. In the end, it's just about Archie. Yeah. It really is. It's just about Archie. So can he bring in three, four guys a year that are going to help the program? In year one, he brought in one. That we know of. That we know of, right? That's why I say it's an incomplete at best. Yeah. Jerome, it's really sad. Who knows? Demisi, right now it's a zero. We don't know. Uh, and and race, Fitzner. Race. Race. Right now it's a zero. We yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. So the only tell. one that you can look at and go, this guy's going to be really good or has a chance to be really good is Rob. Because Rob can be really good. Rob's got to develop a consistent outside shot or he will not be really good. Well, I, you know, if I could pick one position to have a good feeling about going forward for the next three years, it's that it's the point guard for an Archie Miller team, for any college team to have like, what, what position do we definitely feel good about for the next three years as point guard? I do. I have total confidence in Rob going forward. I, I like Rob a lot. I'm not with you yet on total confidence because I do believe he's got to develop a 35 to 38% consistent three-point shooter to be consistently effective. He was a freshman, and he did great as a freshman. Between having a concussion and half of his team being decimated half the time and everything that went on this season, I thought he came through it with relative flying colors. So- yeah, I thought, I thought he was great as a freshman. I don't think what he did year one is enough 
to to be the leader of a program going forward, but he sh- shouldn't have had to because he was a freshman. He's got to improve his game, just like Al has to continue to improve his game. Because if if Rob doesn't improve his game, we won't. You will not feel the same confidence that you that you had after freshman year. If he turns in the same performance he did in freshman year and sophomore year, you, you I think you will have a different perspective. Well, and that perspective will be like, what the hell's going on with our player development? Fair enough. Which, Fair enough. Look, that was a question all through this season. But how about what Jeff said about the players that improve are the ones who love the game? Victor Oladipo loved the game. Yep. It looks like Al Durham loves the game. Well, and is I think that's a huge part of who's Archie recruiting. You know, totally. I think Armand seems to love the game. Everything we've heard Trace, about Armand. Trace seems to love the game. Yeah. But it's, we, we, we really won't know till you start hearing reports of who's in Cook Hall at 12.30 a.m. the night after a game putting shots oh, out. Oh, you mean who gets the gold jersey? Do we have to, we have to look forward to who gets the gold jersey in practice? Sure. The cursed jersey? I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know about all that. What I know is I want to hear about who the gym rats are. Yeah, I agree with that. I uh, like that. Who, who's who's going to be the Victor Oladipo of, of Archie's team? Yeah. I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but I'm going back to Jeff going, guys that love the game. I actually think Devontae Green loves the game. I do. I think he's got some wiggle. He now, does have wiggle. Now, will he will he dedicate himself the way he needs to? Let's see. Uh, he certainly became a better player in year two than he or in year three than he was in year two. Well, it's interesting to see. We agree he had about four really good games towards the end of last year. Yeah, and then he kind of came on late this year too, but really strong and from much longer well, stretch. And his beginning of the season this year was derailed by injury, and then the suspension happened, and. He could have gone south. He could have thrown his hands up because he got critiqued by us. Oh, mercilessly. And we're the least of it. I mean, he was hearing it. He could have just sold out for himself. He didn't. He got better. So I I give him credit for that. Well, and Archie credit for that because Archie, I'm sure, saw the full power of what Devontae can do on the court regularly in practice. Unfortunately, it didn't show up a lot during games until later in the season. And then I think we all probably saw why Archie continues to keep him out on the court despite some super boneheaded plays in hero ball. Yeah, look, the sad thing is... ceiling so high. True, and the, the sad part is, I mean, he did go off in the Ohio State game, you know, which, which brought us back in that game. But then we played three games in the NIT that he was the star of the team with Juwan. He's not that if Romeo doesn't sit out. Right. So that's that's hope for next year. Yeah, I hope. And can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? Can we talk about this? We beat a Final Four team this year twice. Twice. We we are the national champion. <laughs> we're we're definitely top three. No, no, no. We're national champion. If Michigan State wins, we're no, no. They don't champion. have to. We beat them twice. They're in the Final Four. We're twice as good as them, at least. So we win those two games in the Final Four. We're national champion. That is weird, weird logic. I feel like it's pure math. But I think nobody would refute the fact that we should end this season ranked number three in the country at least. If Michigan State wins— We're number two. No, no, no we're they, number one. If, yeah, if they win the national championship, we are the actual I haven't checked de facto. the Ken, Ken Palm rankings, but we're clearly top five now, right? Oh, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I want to say one more thing about love of the game, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I look at Justin Smith. I don't know if he loves the game. Uh, yeah, me either. I don't know. He I might. Know, I know Jeff Van Gundy loves the game. Yeah, that was really fun, man. Thanks for listening, guys. Oh, bef- let's not forget. 
please follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics, no vowels and hysterics. Email us at HoosierHysterics at gmail.com. Who are we we powered by? We are powered by Peaks. Only on Peaks do you get to hear podcasts with Jeff Van Gundy. All right, we will uh, we'll do another one of these soon. I think so. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile. And get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.